Action Park Media. Hi, I'm Ethan Suplee. Welcome to American Glutton. Outside of acting, my two favorite things to do are diet and eat. I have a very complicated relationship with food, and on this podcast, we're going to talk about all of it. Food as entertainment. Food as sport. Food as fuel. I'll talk to experts and the average person, just like you and me. I hate to ask you to do anything, but if you're enjoying the show, please take a moment to like, subscribe, rate, review, all of the above on whatever app you're getting it from. Today, I'd like to welcome Dr. Bill Schindler. He is here to talk about his upcoming book, Eat Like a Human. His book is a unique guide that encourages us to honor the sustainable, nutrient-dense foods and cooking methods that kept our prehistoric ancestors healthy. You can find him on Instagram at Dr. Bill Schindler. Bill Schindler, welcome to the American Glutton Podcast. Thank you so much. I'm super excited to be here. Dude, I'm so excited to talk to you. I'm so excited about your book, Eat Like a Human. Um, I, I feel like so much of my life I spent not feeling like a human, like feeling like, like, you know, I think of, I think of people as like that guy's normal. And of course this is like a terrible way to judge somebody, right. Calling them normal. But like, I would just look at somebody and go like, why can't I just be normal? And it all came down to like, what's wrong with me. There's something wrong with me. Now it, it turns out after many years of trial and error with diets and doing all the diets, which I can't wait to talk to you about, because I know you have some opinions on them, but like that eating had a, had played a big role in me not feeling uh, like I was a normal person. Absolutely. It played a, it played a role in, in, in how, how you felt, how you felt about yourself, how you felt, about how you fit in with the people around you and the world around you, 100%. Eating is such, you know, I, I like to say every, every time you take a bite of food, you're expressing to the world all, all sorts of information about yourself, um, about, uh, and, and some of it's fortunate, some of it's unfortunate, but your socioeconomic status, your political stance, your religion, your tradition, your history, all these things are expressed with, with, through food. And so, so food by default, is a essential part, essential part of being human, and you know, true health doesn't just come from the biological, you know, health that you can get from food. It's also that cultural and emotional health as well, and it all has to work together. Um, and it's a moving target because things that can make us healthy today, biologically, are I'm convinced are the same that would have made us healthy 300,000 years ago biologically, but we are very different culturally. And we have, you know, we're different now than we were five years ago and our tastes and our interests and all these things. And it, it all to achieve, I'm convinced to achieve true, genuine health. All of those things have to be taken into account at the same time. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And I think there's something kind of magical about and 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 look i know we're going to get into the anthropological side of this which which goes back like you said three hundred thousand years because i have a i have a cookbook um that comes out of rome i think and so that's like 2500 year old recipes and even mm -hmm. that looking at it it's like amazing how different the food of rome is today but still has some kind of hints of this Romanness, you know? Sure. And so when I think about traveling 
for me, the number one thing that that is like a draw is how do people eat there? How do people mm-hmm. eat differently than me? I want to go and experience that. And you you go into another culture and you break bread with them and you feel differently, you know, like sometimes it's from a spice or sometimes it's from uh, a ritual based around food or whatever it is, but you become a part of this other group and and then you take some of it into you and you actually exist as them because it changes in you chemically or whatever it is. Like it's a, eating can be such a magical thing. And then I feel like I grow up in America where it's like I'm eating the majority of my meals at AM, PM or 7-Eleven and mm-hmm. like, what is that? That's my culture. That's what I, that, you know what I mean? Like, it's just, it's always been such a disappointment to me. Um, and like not blaming it on anyone. Uh, you know, I'm not sitting here going like 7-Eleven's bad. 7-Eleven is a super convenient place to buy batteries if you're run out of batteries and, you know, and there's no big box store open. Um, but I don't know that it's been a great place to build my body. Yeah, absolutely. And and the other thing, I was just talking with somebody about this earlier today. You know, America's huge. It's huge. And the diversity in um, geography and natural resources and even cultures around, you know, within our one country is is incredible. However, you can get the same exact food in New Jersey as you can in LA and the Northwest Coast and all, all these places. And we unfortunately we see this as convenience and, and maybe and maybe an emotional safety net that we don't have to you know step outside of the box. What we can't experience as easily what you're talking about when you experience traveling, like going somewhere to Italy and, and even Italy, which is a fraction of the size of our country, has such diversity in, in different parts of, of that one country. So it is. You're absolutely right. And and with that, you know, one thing I like to to, to say all the time is that you know, that, that experience that you're talking about from, through traveling, and you get that experience through food, you get to meet people and understand cultures in, in really powerful ways through food, partially because eating is one of the few genuinely sensual experiences that we as, we as humans have. I mean, we use every single one of our senses when we're eating food and they're firing properly. And 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 I, I hope we get a chance to talk about this later. I mean, th- those are evolutionary responses to trying to get the right foods into our bodies. That's why every part of our bodies is firing and, 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 and smell and taste and texture and all those things are important. But it also makes that experience when we do it right, so incredibly pleasurable and nourishing at the same time. I have a question and this might be off topic and, 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 and uh, complete, um... Sidebar and is and if it is, we can just disregard it. But I, I and I've read no studies on it, and I, so I have no idea if, if this is true or not. But I've been trying to conjure in my mind like the um, the, the kind of reward that that you, your body gets physically, and I'm talking about like hormonally and chemically from exercise. And and at some point, was that tied into food? Like you had to go out and actually physically work to manifest food that, there, because there were no stores, right? You had to find it and either catch it or harvest it or, or pick it or climb up a tree, or you had to exert yourself physically. And then you're rewarded with this nutritious thing that you eat to where today, you know, I mean, we're doing this thing over Zoom. We don't have to physically exert ourselves at all for anything, basically. Um, and, and I'm wondering how that plays a role in how we eat. Do you know what I mean? Was that was that part of anything you looked at? Uh, so 
absolutely. Uh, I think you're, you're spot on. What a couple things I think everyone needs to understand is number one, like you mentioned, um, for the majority of our existence as a species, the vast majority, everything we put into our mouths came from a wild source. It was harvested by us. It was either a wild plant or a wild animal. Nothing was grown, nothing was hard, nothing was planted, nothing was see, it was all wild. So we were hunters and gatherers for almost the entirety of our existence. So what some of us now might look at as a weird behavior, somebody going out and foraging and picking a plant or somebody going out hunting was the norm. What's strange is that we go to the grocery store and all that stuff has been done for us. So yeah, I'm sure that, uh, and the other thing I want everybody to understand is uh, it's difficult to, what you're suggesting, which I totally agree with, is difficult to see archaeologically because it doesn't necessarily see. But this is how I feel about it. And I, and I think it uh, can, in a second, directly answer that question. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. There are three things that every species on this planet must do successfully to make sure that the species survives. One is reproduce viable offspring, um, protect that ourselves and that offspring until they can reproduce and nourish ourselves so that we can produce viable offspring and make sure that that viable offspring can reach childbearing age and, and, and do the same thing. Whether you're a plant, an animal, a horse, a person, it doesn't matter. You have to be able to do this. And if you think about it, those are the three parts of our lives, safety, nourishment, and procreation or sex that are truly sensual experiences where every, you know, if you're, if somebody's woken up because something fell in your house at two o'clock in the morning, you know, and you know that your, your senses are heightened and you feel everything at a heightened level when you're eating properly or when you're eating in general, all of your senses are operating. When you're engaged in sex, all of your senses are operating. And when you do them right, they all feel really good. When you do them wrong, they all feel really bad. And it's not a coincidence. That is millions of years of evolution that are that are working to get to the point where, you know, we can make sure that we can keep our species going and and on in all of those ways. The problem is we are so disconnected from our food nowadays. Like you mentioned, we're not going and most of us are not going and harvesting our own food. Heck, we don't even know the people that are doing it anymore. We might know the person at the register that's cashing us out that we see every week. So we're so disconnected that now we're at a place where we can't rely on those senses. We're actually relying on other people to tell us how to eat other diets. We are the only species on the planet that asks somebody what we should be eating. And we're the sickest species on the planet because of how we're feeding ourselves. So something is really wrong and disconnected there. Dude, this question, what should I eat? And look, I, I grew up in Los Angeles. Like, I, I'm sure it's not the same everywhere else. But man, has this question been hammered into me and how many iterations of what should we eat down to like, I remember my mom had had me on an all white diet, like I could only eat white onions and white cabbage and turkey and, and, and uh, cheese that wasn't that was like, uh, you know, Swiss Emmentaler, uh, you know, that kind of shit. And then, and then like a year later, she talked to another guy and he was like, no, no, white is bad. It's all gotta be red. So it was like beets and lamb and red cabbage. And, and like, she would believe this stuff. You know what I mean? And then she would put it on to me. And, and I just, by the time I became um, able to procure my own food, I was like, what can blow my mind with what you're talking about, those sensual things? What has the most fat? 
the most carbohydrates, the most salt, the most sugar. And, 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 and I think I just stampeded for a long time over my ability to connect with food that was nutritious. So by the time I went to my first, um, you know, diet on my own, where it was just like, get rid of processed food. It was kind of like that simple at one point, right? Just get rid of processed food and we'll fine tune it later and, you know, talk about lectins and eating more kale and shit like that. But like, just get rid of processed food. Food for me became such a chore of like, this is not fun, you know? And so how do we make that if we, I think it helps going into it, knowing like you got to repair your ability to enjoy this stuff. You know, it's like, you've been mainlining cocaine for a long time. And now we're trying to tell people like, you're going to enjoy coffee again. You know what I mean? But like, you know what I mean? It's that kind of trade-off there. It's hard. It's a hard transition. It is, but, and a lot of it is mental. And a lot of it is so I think our, our perception of food today and what we need to do with our food to get healthy is entirely screwed up. And, and let's go back to that kind of sensual. And I'm convinced, and, and if nothing, anybody listening to this, if, there, if nothing else comes out of this that you remember, but what I'm about to say here, I think it's the most powerful thing. Your goal should be every time you get up from a table, you should feel better than when you sat down at that table. I mean, the, 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 the role of food is to nourish you. And if you do it properly, if you're, if you're eating the right food, prepared the right way, and in the right environment, we can't forget that you know, the people we're eating with and, and how we're eating and all that, it plays an important role in that, in that health and nourishment as well. But, but you should get up. That food is supposed to nourish you and make you whole and make you better and repair things. And, and you should get up feeling better than when you sat down. And I, that's so simple, but it's so foreign to so many people because I truly believe so many people have never had even once in their life one of those incredibly perfectly nourishing meals now and with that said we're in this mindset now that we have to in order to get into shape or to get better we should go without you know if you if you get up from a table and you feel full and you've done something wrong I should feel hungry if I'm trying to lose weight or I should feel weird if I'm, and eat this weird thing if I'm trying to get healthier. That's exactly the wrong approach because I, and I know this for sure, and it's, I've done it myself and it's been with my family and you can lose weight and feel satiated at every meal. In fact, you should never get up from the table hungry. You should never get up from the table and have to loosen your belt loop three, you know, three things either like at Thanksgiving, but you should get up, feel whole, satiated, better than when you sat down at every single meal. And if that's your, if that's the goal, I mean, what a great way to live. What a great, what a great way to form a relationship with your food. You can lose weight and not feel hungry. You can gain muscle and not overstuff yourself. It's, it's, it's that sort of a balance. And that comes from creating that connection with your food and understanding your food. And from my point of view, really, embracing the uh, ways of preparing food to make it as nourishing as nourishing as possible. Yeah. Okay. Now I, I, I have, I've, I've hunted, I've cooked food over a fire. I've picked vegetables. I've done that. And I know what you're talking. I like, I can, I can fully put myself into a moment. And by the way, like most of the food I eat is unmessed with it's pretty much just like 
it was this thing and now it's just a smaller part of this thing right it didn't, <laughs> n- nothing has happened to it really right but um i i i i just want to understand how in today when we arrive in modernity and mm-hmm. we have uh set up our lives so that procuring and creating food to eat is a tiny tiny little sliver of our time how do we go back into like what's the i i just think it's hard to sell that to a lot of people to say like you got to live like a caveman basically you know what i mean like you got to track down the animal and kill it and clean it and cook it and like and then also (laughs) figure out how to preserve it without letting it go bad so you smoke some of it and like that's a hard sell Oh, and you know what? I'm glad you, you brought that up. I, I didn't mean to suggest that we all should be eating like cavemen. In fact, one of our taglines for the past few years was, uh, it's not about eating like a caveman, it's about eating like a human again. Okay. Um, and this this idea of, of, of adopting or even, first off, there isn't, and I, I've been in this world for a, a very long time, head buried in archaeology and anthropology, and I am not suggesting that I know what people ate to exactly what they ate 200,000 years ago, three, whatever. And, and there's nobody on the planet that can. And even if they could, the diversity even at that time was vast enough that they would only have a handle on maybe what one group may, you know, may have been eating. Um, but we do have a general sense of trends o- over time. And I'd love to dive deep into that at some point. But what I'm suggesting is, is this. Um, number one, even you know, that connection with where the food comes from is incredibly important. I do a lot of foraging. I do a lot of hunting. There's, I, I, there's no way in the world that I can do all the other things that I do and, and support my entire family solely on hunting and, 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 and foraging. We did it for one year and it was an incredible ex- learning experience for me, but the bio, our biological health was off the charts. The mental health and stress in our house from doing everything 100% from scratch made it, you know, it was counterproductive to everything else we were doing. I do have, but it's the other processing that I want to spend a lot of time talking about. The the procurement part, though, that connection through hunting or foraging or fishing or clamming or, or, or raising your own animals or keeping your own chickens is incredibly important, but I don't think it has to be every day. I, I do think there, that sort of reminder, even if you once a season, you know, fall, spring, winter, you know, summer, you go out with your kids and you harvest some dandelions or go out on a charter boat and go fishing and just remember what seasonality is all about. Remember what it feels like and it smells like and it, and it sounds like to, to be engaged in those acts and to connect. I think that's incredibly valuable and important and it doesn't have to happen every day. And that's not what I, uh, what I was suggesting about that nourishment part, although that is a piece of it. What I'm convinced, and this is really the, the, the basis and the foundation for all the work that I'm doing and for my entire outlook on human food, diet and health, is that we as humans are one of the weakest species on the planet biologically, and we have an incredibly inefficient digestive tract. What has happened over the past several million years with our ancestors and our ancestral diets was that we started developing technologies that allowed us to overcome these physical limitations, get resources from our environment we could never get before, and most importantly, and our bodies are not built to deal with, and most importantly, do things to those foods to make them ready for our bodies, whether we, we detoxify them or begin to break them down or make them easier to digest or release nutrients and make them bioavailable, whatever it is. And some of these things are incredibly basic, like 
using a stone tool to butcher an animal or using fire to cook our food or digging a pit in the ground and fermenting, um, for, fermenting vegetables or, or something else. The only food that humans are, you know, when we say humans are omnivores and we ask this question, you know, what, are, what are we supposed to be eating and you know, trying to base our diets on asking, answering that question, what should we be eating? The answer is, well, yeah, humans are omnivores, but not because we're designed to be. We're omnivores through technology because we can do things to foods we have no business eating. Most of the foods that we eat, we have no business eating. The only food that humans are biologically perfectly designed to consume is raw dairy from our mothers when we're infants. That's that's literally it. Wow. We can handle certain fruits and wild, certain certain safe fruits and vegetables and some insects, but other than that, we require tech, some sort of technology at some point in the system to. Um, get resources from our environment and do something to them to make them safe and, and nourishing to our bodies. So I, you know, I read your bio. I love what, I love what you do. And I was able to connect so closely with all of it. Um, and I, I just want to, I want to I give this quick little story, if you don't mind, first off, number no, one, um, I, I, my favorite movie on the planet is remember the Titans, which I think is super cool. Yeah. Um, but there's, there's a connection that, you know, I have asked that question, what should we be eating my entire life? And I remember as a kid, I was so my body image was so poor and that food was something that just, I thought, you know, just made me ugly and made kids make fun of me and get beat up, you know, all. And I remember going into the bathroom just as a safe place. And I, you know, whether I was going to the, literally going to the bathroom or not, I'd sit there and I'd look and you'd sit and you see the rolls I'd see the rolls in my stomach and I would physically grab the fat and I would out loud say, if somebody could just tell me what I should eat, I could feel good about myself. And this is years and years and years and years. And my whole life, I've been chasing this question, what should I be eating? And what I found through doing archaeology and, and through anthropology and living and working with indigenous groups all over the world is that, yes, that question's important, but that's not the only question we should be asking because as humans we already run into trouble when we ask that question because really what should we be eating is an irrelevant question without the how should we be eating part of it because something has to be done to that food whether and, and also i think from what you're saying like where we find ourselves like if it, if, it, if we wanted to go strictly biologically it's like what vegetables and fruits and bugs are present around you right now so like if we're just being like that's it everything else takes some some messing with it, it does and even so plants and this is gonna this is gonna sound strange to a lot of people but this this is very important Pl all plants are toxic like all plants have some level of toxin in them and it makes sense why because they have to protect themselves and do those very things we talked about earlier and they don't move so they the, protect themselves with chemical and physical defense mechanisms, physical ones like thorns and things, but, but all they don't move and they have to engage in chemical warfare to protect themselves from predators, from insects, from diseases, from fungus, whatever. So there's toxins in all plants. Now, some of these toxins are at such low levels that they don't do anything to us and we can eat them and not really be worried about them. Some of them will kill us outright. Most of them, many of them will build up in our bodies over time and years and years and years later can start to wreak havoc on our bodies. And we have to be aware of these things. And if you look at indigenous and traditional groups all over the world, they have ways of taking, there's certain vegetables they just won't eat, period. 
because they're just too pro problematic. But other ones, ones that are in our diets all the time are versions of them like potatoes, for example. Potatoes are incredibly toxic. And there are, there are groups like the Amar and Quechua Indians in South America that subsist on potatoes. And they actually, the ones they subsist on are, many of them are incredibly po more poisonous than the ones we have in our, in our grocery stores, but they do things to them all the time to make them safer to eat. So that's one example. Um, hunting is another example. I am convinced that animal foods in our diet helped make us human, mostly blood, fat, and organs, but animals, animal-based foods are incredibly important to us. But we can't get at those animals and rip them apart. We don't have the canines or the nails or the muscles to even do those sorts of things. But we can make a stone tool in less than a second that is sharper and more durable than anything on our bodies. And all of a sudden now we have the ability to, you know, to butcher these animals and get at these really incredibly nutrient-dense um, bioavailable foods. So from my perspective, a question, what should I be eating, will always result in failure unless it's paired with how should I be eating? You know, a great example is bread. My family and I, we own a sourdough bakery and I can, I, I can sit here right now and make a case that sourdough, properly made sourdough bread can be a part of a healthy human diet. At the same time, I would say that most of the bread we have access to has no business going into our mouths, period. There's right. nothing good about it at all. But most of the conversations are, you know, should we eat bread? And if you don't take that how, how is that bread made, then you're never going to get at, a, at an answer to that question that really is meaningful and helpful. Yeah. And and fruit, basically, not, not all fruit, but for the most part, it's almost created to be consumed. And then the excrement would help in fertilizing the seed, right? Like there's some part of that. Yeah. And in fact, that you bring up a very good point. When we look at plants and plant parts, and, I, and I, you know, I do a lot of foraging classes and I, and I never use the word never or always or something with, with foraging because you can get into a lot of trouble with that. There's always an, uh, there's always an exception. But for the most part, if you really think about it, if you look at the toxic parts of plants, they're usually the parts of the plants that the plant doesn't want taken or, you know, or, or so, so leaves and, and stems and seeds, but fruits and flowers, they're there to attract. They're there because they want bees to come to the flowers. So they smell good to taste and, and, and the fruits are there because they want animals eating those fruits and then taking those seeds, which the seeds, seeds, nuts, legumes, all of them are grains they're not designed for us to eat. They're designed to produce new life somewhere else. They have, they're loaded with toxins and anti-nutrients. They're physically made so they can pass through a digestive tract, um, you know, in that pile, and land in that pile of manure somewhere, right? So if we're going to consume fruits, we usually don't have to do too much to them. Um, but if we're going to consume nuts, seeds, grains, legumes, you know, we have to do something to detoxify them, not just grind them up and make flour, or do something else to them to make them safe. Just a few kidney beans, if you eat them raw, will land you in the hospital. Period. Oh, wow. I mean, kidney beans and dried kidney beans in our in our cupboard are so incredibly toxic. We'll end up in the hospital, and there's a good chance, depending on how many we you actually could die. But we can process them through soaking and cooking, detoxify them, and then make them much more safe to eat. And then stuff like uh, good sourdough bread, the the fermentation is doing something to the stuff in there, right? Like when your like starter is consuming the gluten in a certain way that it becomes more, more digestible. That's what I, I read Michael Pollan's book about this. Yeah. And, and he's spot on. So 
breads in general are yeast. Almost every bread that we would buy has a, firm, a yeast fermentation. So yeast eats carbohydrates and produces alcohol and carbon dioxide. The same exact thing that we're doing in beer. And in beer, we like the alcohol and the carbon dioxide that helps carbonate, carbonate the beer. In bread making, the alcohol that's produced gets burned off, or gets cooked off when the uh, when the bread bakes, and there's not much alcohol there anyhow. But the carbon dioxide that's produced leavens the bread, makes it rise and soft and fluffy and all that. It doesn't do anything to make those grains safer. A sourdough bread, ha yeast fermentation is happening, doing those same things, leavening the bread, making it soft and making it luscious and all this. But at, but at the same time, there's another fermentation happening that's a lactic fermentation, the same kind of fermentation if you were making yogurt, for example, or cheese or kimchi. It's the same, same thing. And the lactobacillus bacteria are eating the uh, starches as well, but most importantly, they're transforming the gluten chemically and physically into something different. They're breaking it down. They're making it easier for our bodies to digest. They're transforming it in a way that our bodies, even for many people, many of our customers who are um, gluten intolerant have absolutely no trouble on our bread whatsoever. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Yeah. The problem is, in order to get real sourdough bread, you either have to go to a good bakery or make it yourself, which is incredibly easy to do at home. The problem is most of the, there's no FDA regulation. And this is where I have a trouble with, oh, what should I eat without the understanding of the how? Many people, especially with COVID, got turned on to the sourdough thing. And I love a lot of people even making it. But then they started looking for it in the grocery stores. And it's there, the label, sourdough bread is there in, in, in even some of the big box stores. But there's no FDA regulation for labeling for sourdough. Right. So most of the sourdough you would get at a grocery store is not real sourdough. They've added something yeah. to make it taste like sourdough. But they're not sitting with a starter on top of their fridge covered with a cloth. They're, you know, in some on some massive industrial scale. Yeah, no, it's, it's it's literally yeasted bread. And if you look at the if you turn it over and you see the yeast on the label, and then if you see anything that's acidic. Lactic acid, acetic acid, which is vinegar, um, citric acid, they're adding that in to give it a slightly sour flavor to make you think that it's a sourdough bread. But the important chemical and physical changes to the gluten haven't happened. So it's literally like a, any other bread in the aisle. It just may taste a little sour. Yeah. And, and I think the, the, the big thing to keep in mind is if you ever have made your own bread, you will find out very quickly how not shelf worthy that bread is you can put it in your fridge or you can even freeze it and get some time out of it that way but if you just stick it in a plastic bag and put it on your shelf that is not something you want to buy even a few days later no absolutely not no a freezer does help but you're absolutely right you can freeze sourdough bread and it works pretty well yeah so what is the how 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 we eat okay so and and this is when i when i say eating like a human, this is exactly what I mean. What we as humans do differently than other animals. So first off, other animals, like we mentioned earlier, don't have to ask anybody else how to eat. And when I say animals, don't think about any domesticated animal. We have screwed them up as much as we screwed ourselves up with diets. We've given diabetes and cancer and everything else to, to our pets because of how we're feeding them. Wild animals do absolutely fine they are in tune with their senses. They eat the foods that make them feel the way we've talked about earlier, and they're great. And they live 
you know, for whatever their lifespan is, they live that entire time and then keel over dead, which is something I think we should all aspire to. We may be living longer. We're not living longer today. We're dying longer is really what we're doing. So um, humans don't have that ability to just go eat for a couple of reasons. Culturally, we've screwed everything up. But just as importantly, we had we started three and a half million years ago when we started making tools to process food we started to outgrow or, or out eat our digestive tract. And we did such a good job at this by creating these technologies to process this food and take in all this incredible nutrition that we supported massive body and brain growth over these millions of years to create what we are today. These huge animals with massive nutrient needy brains with these incredibly small and efficient digestive tracts. And that's because we do all these things outside of our body. So we don't have the ability. I don't care if you're Bear grills or know every wild plant or you know know the behavior patterns of all these different animals. If I took you and stuck you in the middle of the woods, um, and even if you didn't die of exposure, you're, you're somewhere nice uh, year-round, and you had no tools whatsoever, and I said, eat and live and be happy, you would die of starvation because we don't – our nutritional needs have grown beyond what we can just get without any processing whatsoever. So when I say eating like a human – and when I'm talking about the, the how, it's all of those things we can do to our food to make it as safe and nourishing as possible before it goes into our bodies. And the cool thing about that approach is I'm convinced that's the approach that built us as a species. I'm convinced that's the approach that can help nourish us now. But it, it really transcends whatever um, – you, you know, I, I heard you mention in your, um, in your intro to the podcast – about you know the best diet is the diet you stick to, which I love. This approach transcends different dietary you know, niches and 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 um, and, and, and approaches. Uh, if you're vegan, vegetarian, pescatarian, carnivore, whatever you are, if you focus on making whatever the resources you're putting into your body as safe and nourishing as possible before you eat them you are going to drastically improve your diet. I don't care what it is you're eating. And a great, you know, and, and really that, that's it. And if you look at our dietary uh, path, our dietary past, that is exactly what we have done up until recent times. We process food now to the expense of nutrients. Yeah, and in fairness, I want to say, like I've been thinking more and more lately about fine-tuning my life when, when we first started the podcast, it was like just about weight loss. And still, I think primarily I am talking about weight loss because that's been the biggest hurdle I had to sure. kind of overcome. But like, okay, I lost weight. There's still a shitload of stuff to improve on. You know what I mean? There's a lot of work left to do. And I think that that has been part of my journey has been coming to find out like there is no one fix for me, it, you know losing weight did not make everything perfect, right? There's right. still a lot of stuff that, that I go like, okay, what can I do now to improve my life? You know what I mean? Like, I, I love what you're talking about. And I love the idea. Like it's, 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 it's pretty obvious. Like nobody picks up a potato and eats it like an apple. You, hmm. you know what I mean? Like, I, I don't think I've ever even tried that like you just wouldn't do that you know it's gonna actually suck. don't you'll get sick you'll right. actually you'll make yourself sick yeah right so like we know that there's processes we have to use to make our food healthy and 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 then if we think about like the majority of the food at a supermarket 
the majority of it has so much shit done to it already to, to just to make it sit on the shelf. Right. And that, yeah. that is the kind of stuff where even if your goal today is only weight loss, just stay away from that. And you're going to make a big improvement. A hundred percent. And I will, I'd also like to say that it should be impossible. It should be impossible to become obese. It should be, but the modern food industry has made it not only possible and accessible, but now the norm. And that's something we should, we should be aware of, but even more importantly, what for the first time in the history of the planet, the modern food industry is putting out food, creating food that is so nutrient free that you can be obese and malnourished at the same time. It's the craziest thing. It, it, it's incredible. So, and, and here's, and I know a lot of this is mindset change and I have, I've had, you know, my own share of, of weight loss and gain over time. Um, I am now 48 years old. I'm in the best shape of my life right this moment. And that includes, I was a division one. I, I wrestled for Ohio state for years and, you know, I'm in better shape now than I was then in my late teens and early twenties, even, even as an athlete. And it, it's solely because of the way that I approach food. And one of the big changes was, was my, my mindset always was trying to lose weight is I, I want to, and, and I think in America, we do this. We want to eat all day long and not get fat. I mean, eating is a very social thing. We enjoy the actually eating and drinking. And so we really seek out food that is nutrient free, both to lose weight and also to just engage in that very human act of eating and not having to, to worry or think about it and just stuff our face with something and not, and, and, and we're not going to gain weight. It's the exact opposite of what we should be doing, you know, and, and, and the, the, the food industry is supporting that, or maybe even helped push us in that direction because they sell more food. There was a study done several years ago in, in a, at grocery stores across the country. And I forget the exact number, but it was something like, 70 or 80% of all the packaged food on the grocery store shelves advertises and boasts about what it doesn't have in it. Right. <laughs> and, and, you know, for three and a half million years, our ancestors were doing everything they could to get the maximum amount of nutrition out of their food while doing the least amount of work, whether that means physical work or our digestive work. Um, and now all we're doing is trying to get food that doesn't have something in it, right? Whether and it, it, and some of you know they'll advertise fat-free, sodium-free, gluten-free, whatever. And and many of these things maybe we shouldn't have in our bodies or, or much of. But the mindset is what's most important to me. We shouldn't be seeking out food that doesn't have stuff in it. We should be seeking out food and most importantly doing things to those foods to make sure we get the maximum amount of nutrition from those foods. And when we do that right, our bodies are satiated. We feel full. We feel good. And we can lose weight at the same time. And that's where that how really becomes important. And real quick with the potatoes, like you mentioned, potatoes are, and I'm not trying to suggest people shouldn't eat potatoes, but what I'm suggesting is that there's things that need to happen to potatoes to make them as safe and nourishing as possible. Potatoes were domesticated 10, 000, around 10,000 years ago. The wild ancestor to potatoes and most of the original domesticated versions, and I'm talking by the time Columbus came, there were three to five, 300 to 500 different types of potatoes under domestication even then, most of them were incredibly toxic. Like if you ate them, you would get sick. Some of them, if you ate them, you would die. I, I went down and lived with an Aymara and Quechua family in Bolivia and Peru a few years ago to, to learn how they dealt with potatoes because they're still eating many of, and growing and eating many of these incredibly 
toxic potatoes. Um, one group I live with e eats the potatoes with clay. Uh, and the, the clay binds with the toxins and, and actually the most They're actually potatoes. consuming clay. Oh yeah. In fact, you know, th these are really toxic potatoes. They're, there's two types of clays that they harvest. They'll mix with water and they have, literally have two bowls. And one was, uh, and they were actually two different colored clays and different flavors, believe it or not. Um, one was a little sour and one was um, more like you would imagine clay would taste. They put a little salt in there and it, it was like, a, it was the texture of, maybe mayonnaise, right? Oh, it reminded wow. me of a, of a, maybe a little bit looser than mayonnaise. And we, we created these little ornitos, these little uh, ovens, uh, earthen ovens, and we cooked all these potatoes and then took the potatoes and between every bite, you dip the potato in the clay and you ate the potato. And you couldn't, you couldn't miss this, right? You had to do it every time. And the clay, and it's, we see this in, in clay was a part of, it's called geophagy, eating earth, was a part of our uh, ancestral diets, I'm convinced, for everyone. And there's still groups around the world that do it, not many. Um, we have a lot of historic and, and our archaeological records that suggest it as well. But you would eat the clays, certain clays bind with certain toxins. And the state that it's in at that point is something our bodies won't recognize. So it passes safely through our bodies while we still get the nutrition from the foods that we're eating. Uh, this so, one but you're not taking sure. nutrition from that potato. Oh yes, you are. Oh, but okay, the toxin, okay. the, the toxin is binding with. So if it. you just ate that potato, the toxin, the, the toxin would enter your body into your bloodstream, and, you, and bad Got things it. would happen. But when it's bound with that clay, it doesn't pass the, through our intestinal walls and just literally passes out of our our bodies. Yeah. Um, what was fascinating about it um, was not only the whole process. But at the end, you know, I say eating clay to a to a modern American today, you're like, oh my gosh, what are you talking about? It wasn't this chore. It wasn't this weird thing. In fact, the youngest daughter of the family, when we were all done, we ate all the potatoes, and there was still a little bit of clay left in the two bowls. And she did to that clay what my youngest daughter does to mayonnaise. She took her finger, she swiped it all, and ate the clay right off her finger. <laughs> it was it wasn't this weird thing to them. This was common and it happened regularly. Um, now, the reason that I'm bringing that up is, first of all, I think it's a super cool story. Um, but every, I, I lived in Ireland with my family for a year when I was writing this book, um, for doing some of the research for the book, and we ate a lot of potatoes in Ireland. It was nothing compared to the amount of potatoes that we were eating in South, in Bolivia, in Peru. I mean, massive quantities of potatoes. And every single time somebody I was with ate a potato or cooked a potato, prepared a potato, except for one time, they always peeled it. Hmm. Always. Now it may not seem like a big deal to us because the potatoes that we're used to are, you know, russet potatoes and we have a potato peeler and I say peel a potato and you can do it in, you know, 20 seconds. These, all these potatoes were heirloom varieties of potatoes. They came in all different shapes and sizes. None of them were smooth. They were all gnarled. They looked like a, a droop of grapes more than they looked like a potato and nobody had a potato peeler. So the chore, you know, the effort that it took to peel these potatoes was massive with a knife and all these gnarly looking knobby things. And it spoke, and I asked them numerous times, everybody, why? It's because most of the toxins are in the skin of the potato and they are, and it makes sense because, you know, if the toxins are there to protect that plant and the most important part of that plant is the starches in that root that's allowing that plant to survive, then it should be at the barrier, right? It should be at the barrier between that and, and the outside world. Um, I was brought up, and I'm sure you and many people listening, oh, my God, eat the skin because everything's in, you know, all the good stuff's in the skin. Now, there are nutrients in the skin, but it's not worth it because most of the nastiness that we shouldn't be consuming is in the skin. 
it was always peeled. So one of my big takeaways from being with everyone was that I always peel the potatoes now, always. But um, secondly, and, and by the way, all these toxins that are in these potatoes of the people that I was with are still in existence in the potatoes in our grocery store, just at much lower levels. So we might not have to eat our potatoes with clay or, you know, some groups were uh, the, uh, the Quechua were making something called tokash and they would bury the potatoes or submerge them in water for a minimum of six months and ferment them. I'm not sure if and, I'm not sure if I'm thinking of a potato or some other root, but I have it in my head that I watched on National Geographic some group that would chew this root, spit it out, and then ferment. Like somehow their spit would help ferment this thing, and then they would drink it. But otherwise, it was, it was probably poison. cassava. Right? Maybe it was cassava. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So, um, to, to real quick, because I do want to say something about that. So that's super cool. Um, the, the other thing that was fascinating was the only time they didn't peel the potato for all the time I was down there was when we ate it with the clay. And that was the most toxic potato that we ate. And it really spoke to the detoxification power of, of using that clay. I thought it was fascinating, but you know, what's super cool about the, 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 um, the, uh, the chewing part, we see that around the world the earliest sake in the world was made by chewing and spitting out rice there's a, a drink in south america called chicha that was made by chewing and spitting out maize or, or corn and and the drink you're referring to in several other examples our our um saliva has an enzyme called amylase which converts complex carbohydrates into sugars and and the yeast can then work on the sugars and, and, and create alcohol so that's one of the reasons they were chewing it was to do that conversion right and so 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 these are some of the ways that we are already, you know, maybe through uh, hybridization and, 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 and growing, we've grown some of the toxins out of them. But like a potato, again, people, you don't just pick one up and eat it raw, right? And so no. we know that that has some harmful effects on us and we yeah. just act accordingly. I, I, I would wonder why like that's an that's an easy no-brainer because you get sick immediately versus like you eat in the inside of the grocery store for a long time and it takes a long time for these side effects to show up and so it's fun and why you know we don't sure. care and, and that's one of the problems with food and really trying to get out the healthiest diet possible many of the issues that happen through eating the wrong foods don't happen immediately. They happen over, over time. And it's hard to associate five, 10 years later that this, some, this thing that you've been doing is what caused it. <laughs> you know, if you eat something and you get sick, you okay, I don't eat that anymore. But if you eat something and eat something and eat something and three years later, you're starting to feel a little bit, you know, your joints hurt or something like this, like, like a buildup of something like oxalates in, in, in our diet, then it's hard to associate that with diet. And you must think it's something else. Or unfortunately, something else we as humans do is we normalize some of what we, we consider the effects of getting old. Like, you know, we turn 40, we turn 50, you know, our joints are starting to ache. It's hard to get out of bed in the morning. And we're just like, oh, this is the way it's supposed to be. I'm just getting old. And, and, and the answer is, no, it's not. I mean, it's, it's, right. it's not that way. Um, and a lot of times, in many cases, it's something like a uh, buildup of toxins in our bodies. Like, and, and unfortunately, a lot of times it comes from certain plants not processed the right way, like oxalates that can build up and, and cause a lot of these arthritic conditions. Having studied all this stuff historically and in depth, I, I want to just ask you about, because I have some other theories that I don't know that 
are i don't know if there's any way to really back them up by science there's studies like the dutch hunger winter was an interesting study on how um from one generation to the next experiencing a famine can create and and i think this is really only with the prevalence of food that we have today like i don't think this would work the same way set 300,000 years ago but right. like we are designed to store fat and and we are much better at at storing fat like like the, it seems to be a perfect storm that has happened with the way we evolved and the way we ate and how scarce food was and how hard we had to work for food and then we blink and we wake up and it's like everybody can have twice as many calories or 10 times as many calories as they need mm -hmm. of course we're going to get fat we, our, our bodies our, our bodies kind of evolved knowing famine really well and 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 like stuff like the dutch hunger winter showed that like perfectly healthy people could give birth to people who were utterly predisposed to obesity and diabetes just because they experienced a famine mm -hmm. yeah and, and that's part of that that connection piece we we for, it's hard because our evolutionary uh responses to food have not caught up with the modern food system and the prevalence of all these sugars and carbohydrates and other things processed foods in our diet that were so hard to get in the past and now because of you know fossil fuel farming and and government subsidies and all the you know we have grains and other things in our diets that we would have never i mean if you think about it the amount of effort it takes to harvest seeds and plant seeds and tend crops and 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 you know it, process and grind and all the if we we're doing all of these things by hand we wouldn't have to worry about how our bodies felt we ate it because we'd only have you know, six loaves of bread a year right that that'd be it but right. now we can get it and it's so cheap in the grocery stores and the mechanisms that we used to use that we rely on to um help determine what we should be eating and how much of it are are no longer valid right they don't they don't well they're valid but they're difficult to um pay attention to in, in in the modern in the modern foodscape 100 and and it's something as simple i was talking to somebody the other day about this with nuts um you know if i told you to go harvest you know black the, the walnuts that have fallen on the ground and, and and eat some you would have to go harvest them you'd have to get the hole off the outside which most people don't even know there is a hole because they only see the you know in the grocery store get the hole off and then you'd have these nuts with shells in them and then you have to crack the shells and then you'd have to pick the nut meats out and then you'd have something to eat and now we can stick our hand and get a bag of a big box store of almonds and stick our hand in it and it's super cheap and we can eat as much as we want and we don't have that that, that remembering that it takes hours and hours or days and days to even get to the point of that bag and now we can eat massive quantities of calories you know from eating that that bag of almonds and, and take all the other things in at the same time and that's across the board with our food so that's why i really like that idea of just going out and and and, and harvesting something or spending a day at the farm or going out on a fishing boat or doing something to remember the effort that it takes to get at some of these foods and price is should not be the indicator of what you should or shouldn't be eating now i know and i'm not and i'm not uh even suggesting that price doesn't make a difference and i do understand that there's all sorts of economic diversity and and some people can only afford to, that that's not what i'm suggesting at all 
but it should not price should not be the determinant factor on, of this is good for me to eat and this is not so good for me to eat and because this is cheap i should eat more of it because this is expensive i should eat less of it now certainly those things the price helps in our, our economic situation certainly helps dictate what we can or can't afford but it shouldn't be the hey this is good for me this isn't i should eat a lot of this or i shouldn't eat a lot of this based on price because none of it is any sort of reality in a nutritional world yeah um, or based I, on I, I think the I I think we're getting to a place where more and more people are interested, at least in you know it, it, it is mind-boggling to me that um, it's illegal to make a video about what a slaughterhouse looks like. You know, like that to me, I'm like people should know. When my kids, my my youngest kids, were like three and five, I took them to the one butcher. Uh, in Los Angeles that I knew of that processed game meat because I wanted them to see like, hey, this stuff that's in a package at the grocery store that you like, I want you to understand it was once Bambi or a version of Bambi. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? So like that's sure. a reality that so I really like what you're saying about people going out just to just to have some idea that when you go back into the grocery store, like this potato or, you know, even harder, this this cellophane wrapped piece of meat nondescript animal meat um like a lot went into it getting here and and what would it have taken to get here without the big factories you know what i mean like what did our what did we come from i i think that's really smart and picking dandelions is great because they're delicious too <laughs> they are and they're incredibly nutritious um and, and it, it, we i think we also need to remember that too that this and we mentioned it in, earlier in our discussion that it's not weird to pick dandelions. It's not weird to go hunting. It's weird to go to the grocery store and buy these things already packaged. That's the weird thing. And we need to you know, always reinforce that. But even with the animals, and, and I know there's, there's a debate right now waging like it's never waged before. And it's so polarized. It's either all plants or all animals, which both <laughs> of them I have opinions on. But the the real conversation should happen in a space where we take responsibility we understand the entire system we do things to change the system and we do things to make sure that the animals are treated properly in the most sustainable way and end up on our tables in the most nourishing form possible and the way to do that is not to buy prepackaged chicken breast in the grocery store and have the kids see that the way to do that is to return and i call it, I, I there's no there's no hair or skin or feathers or even bones in our kitchens any longer and it's so you can't you can't blame kids for not being able to take that white hunk of chicken breast and relate it back to a chicken and and feel some sort of um you know compassion and responsibility to it when all you're doing is seeing it in a package I, you know i i i think one of the most powerful things you can do and this is going to sound really strange um, in today's world, but it's not strange from my perspective, is 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 bring you know butcher in your house. And that doesn't mean you got to bring in a whole deer or bring in a whole cow, which would be difficult, but bring in a whole chicken. It's weird that we it's difficult to even buy a whole chicken anymore. It's easier to buy breasts or legs. Bring in a whole chicken and let your children see the form of an animal, right? A, a chicken breast doesn't look like anything. But a chicken looks like a chicken and yeah. or, or right or or a pork shoulder looks like an arm. And that isn't weird. 
it's weird that they don't associate that. And then, you know, then those kind of discussions about animals and animal rights and, and making sure they're cared for properly and, and everything happens and that whole supply chain is, is, is done in the most sustainable, ethical way. That's, that's the space that those conversations can happen. No, I, think I, it's really important. I, I totally, totally agree. I think it's just a better, it's a, it, it feels to me to be a more honest headspace, you know, yeah. Um, after I took my kids there, my uh, five-year-old at the time asked me if she could get a rabbit. And I said, yeah, we could get a rabbit. And then she came back a few minutes later and she said, we better get two in case you want to eat one. <laughs> and, and like, in total fairness, I actually thought like, I'm glad that that's her perspective. Like it might be a little macabre, but I also like think rabbits are delicious. I'm not going to eat her pet, but like, yes, you go to a restaurant and you order food that started out a cute and cuddly little thing, you know, yes. um, it, and that we idolize in cartoons and like they have stuffed animals and the, and, and the association that that's what they're consuming and, and that those things bleed and have nervous systems and all of that, it kind of goes out the window. So like, I'm not necessarily, I'm not, I, I eat meat. I like meat, but I also think there there's uh, some level of detached dishonesty that goes on with our grocery stores because it's hard to picture any of that stuff as a living thing. Um, you know, I, I think that's all really super valid and important. I, I do too. And the other thing that it comes along with it uh, is when we look at, and I, I always go to the past for answer, for at least inspiration on how to address problems that we have today. I don't, like we mentioned in the beginning, I, I, it's not about eating like a caveman. It's not taking something from the past and directly trying to transplant it into our modern lives because that those are approaches that won't last, right? They either are so foreign or so expensive or so time consuming that even if you could do it for a week or a month, you're not gonna stick with it. What I'm, what I'm really after are these sorts of approaches that are informed by the past but transformed into something that is really relatable and accessible and meaningful and relevant today. Um, and with that said, though, when we look at the past, one of the problems I have with the way we're approaching animals today, first of all, I have huge problems with the modern, modern industrial meat system, period. Um, so but let's just put that on the table for, for a second. In general, when we approach eating animals, we're always using the term meat or even more problematic in, in restaurants, we, they use the term protein. And both, that, that's even worse to me because that really is detached from the reality of a, a living, breathing thing, right? And as an anthropologist and archeologist, the meat really didn't do a whole heck of a lot when it entered our diets. It was the other parts of the animal, the blood, the fat, and the organs, which really made a huge difference. And those are the most bioavailable, nutrient-dense, accessible parts of an animal. And those are the parts that most of us don't have in our kitchens at all. And just to throw out a, a quick number, which I think are a couple numbers that make a, a huge difference. We in North America, in America, in the US, eat about 55% of a pig and 50% of a cow by weight makes it, they make it to the grocery store shelves, right? That, that's for most of us who are buying our, 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 our meat from a grocery, our animal products from a grocery store. The only thing that we see is half of that animal. The only thing we have access to buy and take home and cook and nourish our family is half of the animal. Now, 
the reality is when you look at groups around the world today and definitely historically and even more importantly in the past, they're eating 96, 97, 98% of that animal, which means by weight, half of that animal isn't even accessible to most of us or even in our conscience. But if I were to tell you, and I'm convinced that the flesh, the meat is one of the least nutrient dense parts of that animal, that the majority of the nutrition comes from that other half then you don't have you have access to less than half the nutrition that that animal can provide. So from a simple, I say simple, but from a a mindset change, if you were to use more of that animal, these are the things that would immediately fall into place. Number one, from an ethical perspective, it sits a lot better with me to harvest an animal and use almost all of it to nourish myself and my family. 100%. Number two, from a from an economic perspective. Think about those small farmers who are raising incredible animals that really only have the opportunity to sell half of that off as food, right? And now all of a sudden there's a market for the other half for these farmers who are doing really amazing jobs. So from an economic perspective, it's great. And those other parts are cheaper cuts anyhow. So for you as the consumer, you know, it, it also makes economic sense. From a sustainability perspective, I'm telling you right now, we can take all the animals that we use as food around the world and more than double the amount of nutrition that can come out of them without changing anything but what we use from that animal. And then just as importantly, from a nutritional perspective, the majority of the high quality nutrition comes from the other part we don't have access to. That's, a, I think, a really important example of the how that I'm talking about, how we approach those animals and how we can take all of those different pillars and those things we think are important and all of a sudden start to address them all simultaneously. Yeah, I, I I can't wait to read your book. And, and I hope you go into this in your book. But uh, also, there are a couple cookbooks I love. Fergus Henderson has a cookbook called uh, On Nose to Tail Eating. And then there's another cookbook by a gal called An Awful O-F-F-A-L Cookbook, which is all awful as you know, the innards. Um, amazing recipes, stuff to do to the organs that, you know, is wild and fun, but also makes it palatable for somebody who's not accustomed to eating that stuff. I grew up eating liver and, and kidneys. Did and, you? Yeah. And, and, and I f like, I mean, liver and onions was something I ate once a week as a kid, I, you know, I, I, I love that stuff. So, so I recommend anybody who wants to mess around and start to eat organs get some get some of these cookbooks check out your book because you will just fire them up and inspire them to do, do it but then there are loads of things to be done to make this stuff really delicious 100 percent. yep and there, another new one that came out recently is called it takes guts okay is, is a pretty good one uh chris cosentino he was a celebrity chef um that, that, that had a really cool restaurant based on using awful. He's great. Fergus Henderson has several books. He's yeah. wonderful. So yeah, those resources really are there. I, I dive deep into it in my book as well. And, you know, once you get over that hump of, okay, yeah, that really, that really can be food and then prepare it the right way. And everybody realizes, yeah, and it really tastes delicious and looks and smells good too. Um, and it's satiating, right? You, that, you know, I know I keep using that word, but that, that sense of fullness and or, or um, fullness isn't even the right word. Satisfaction from a meal without that overstuffed, you know, uncomfortable feeling. That thing that we should be striving for in all of our meals that really comes from eating those parts of the animal as well. Yeah, yeah, man, Bill, this was such a fucking cool conversation. Thank you so much. I really can't wait to read your book. 
Well, listen, it was my pleasure. It's great to talk to you. I love what you're doing. I'm glad to be a part of it. Thank you so much. Let's let's have another conversation down. I would love to have you back to talk about this more once your book is out. Sounds good. Love to do it. Amazing. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. And now for the Q&A. Here's a question from Rutger. Hi, Rutger. He says, first of all, thanks for the ongoing motivational and supportive free content. You're welcome. Thank you for listening. Last year, I've finally, after 10 plus years of trying everything, managed to drop from 293 pounds to 238 pounds. That's awesome. All through diet with no sport or exercise. The weight fell off of me. Such an amazing feeling. Due to some personal drama, I've gained back some weight and I hover around 250 now. But two months ago, I took back control. The diet is on point again, but I've also really upped the training regimen, six days a week strength training. I see the difference in the mirror and definitely feel a lot better, but the scale isn't moving as fast and sometimes not at all. Are you familiar with something similar? I will keep doing what I'm doing because it feels like the right thing, but I'd like to really hear your take on it, and maybe it can help someone else listening who's dealing with the same stuff. And he's from the Netherlands and says, cheers. Cheers, Rutger. Scott, cut out this dead air, please. Yes, Rutger, I'm very familiar with what you're talking about. Um, I don't know. I mean, my uh, immediate thing, um, there could be so many factors at play here. Um, first of all, I, I, I don't personally judge weight gain or loss off any single instance getting on the scale. I judge it on a on a two-week basis. So if I'm trending down, then I'm losing weight. If I'm trending up, then I'm gaining weight. And if I'm if my graph over the course of two weeks is static, then I'm maintaining. That's how I judge weight gain and loss. And if you're just seeing that it's not if so if you're if you're charting it in, in some kind of progression like that and you're tending down but at a slower rate. Maybe you're eating a little bit more because you're hungry or because you're working out. That's possible. Are you salting your food? It's possible to retain water that way. Is there anything different in your diet than what you were doing before is what I'd look at first. And second, I would say if you're losing weight, then just keep doing what you're doing. If you feel good and you're working out and you're losing weight, then, then you're on the right track. But I wouldn't judge it based on any single day getting on the scale and going like, well, when I was dieting before, I was losing four or five pounds a week, and now I'm losing two. Two pounds a week is massive. It's great. At 250 pounds, you really don't need... I mean, that to me sounds like a, a really good formula for weight loss. So I don't know what your exact stats are, but I would say um, look at a little bit of a broader picture for weight loss, weight gain, and maintenance than instances. And... Yeah, sometimes it's slower. Um, I, I don't. I'm not mad at, at slow weight loss. We're talking about 
trying to do something that will last for the rest of our lives that we don't want to keep doing this right or we want to we want to rehabilitate ourselves so that it's not a problem um that we're constantly fighting with and so that doesn't change over that night that doesn't change in a few months like we got to really put in work to for the long term and the long term takes a while that takes time yeah that makes sense that's a really good reminder i feel like i love the point you made about the trend of it all because uh, from my own personal experience, you can get stuck on what it says today. And then tomorrow you're like, well, it was only this and, you know, and, or if it stays the same, but then if you look at it over a week or two, you lost weight. Yeah. Like that's pretty great. Yeah. yeah. Thanks for that. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. I, I, you know, the scale is so, is such a beast that I fight with. I, I have to talk myself through that every time I get on the scale mm-hmm. still. So it's not like, yeah, that's, that's what I say to myself mm-hmm. every time at twice a week when I get on the scale, mm-hmm. you know, cause Love it's it. never exactly the number I want it to be. And so once in a while it is, but usually it's not. Usually I'm a bit like, I'm unhappy with this number. Why am I unhappy with this number? Mm-hmm. Oh, actually this number is completely fine. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, good. Yeah. If you have a question that you'd like answered on the podcast, please email it to us at AmericanGlutton.net. Thanks for listening to this episode of American Glutton. I'm Ethan Suplee, and as always, joined by my chaperone, Paige Dorian. Follow us on Instagram at American Glutton Podcast. Sincerely. <laughs>